0: We're getting right into it this week with Olympic Speed. Today's guest for episode 270 of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast is the journalist Daniel Cowlitz. Now in its ninth year, this is the show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. His piece on enthusiastic sobriety, or ES, about Bob Meehan and the wreckage his program in Cult caused is a sprawling and ambitious piece and makes you go, how the F did Daniel pull this off? So consider subscribing to The Atavist because that's where you're going to find this piece and support the blockbuster storytelling, say where Darby and company are, are up to over there. Incredible writing, beautiful design. It's the way long form journalism is meant to be. So we talk about Daniel's piece But first I speak with lead editor of the piece Jonah Ogles That's that's what we're going to do So I told you we would be getting right into it So let's do this <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, I mean We First of all, I, I did not expect um, such depth of reporting even in the even in the pitch from such a young writer. you know it's it's a sort of ambitious piece of like plenty of people pitch, but even really seasoned hands you know may may not ha- have done quite so much work on the front end. So it, it was clear from the get-go that Daniel, already had the sources lined up he already had really good connections he had he was tapped into the network that he would need to be able to pull a story like this off and and he just hasn't stopped delivering on the reporting front from the get go i mean it's it's pretty common you know for any writer to to say well i need to go back and you know ask a couple questions about that but like i would guess that's happened only a handful of times in the two years that I've been talking to Daniel about this story. Like he, he generally just knows, knows the stuff so well that he can answer like basically off the top of his head. It's really, really impressive.
0: Oh, you said two years. So this has been a piece two years in the making. Yeah, more
1: than two years. I got the first draft of this story on March sixteenth, twenty twenty, which I'm just realizing is like also basically the start of the pandemic. Yeah, good um, times. But uh, and and he and I, before he even sent me the draft, we were going back and forth on the outline and sort of like a character list. So yeah, this this is almost two and a half years. I think it was January. 2019 that he pitched
0: it, if I remember right. Jeez that that is that's incredible. The uh, just the, uh, I but I believe it too because this is such a it's like we were say, saying a very ambitious piece with a ton of reporting, and um you know what was it ab- about this that you think uh lent itself to take it this long to you know to to form to forge it and 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 shape it.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is the subject itself has a long history. You know, we're our stories are often looking at you know something that might have taken place over the on the outside end, like the course of a decade. And this is a story with literally a fifty-year history, and so there there was a lot of stuff to get into. I mean, he part of it is that. Daniel had to cover the 50 year history of enthusiastic sobriety which itself you know would be quite the undertaking but also he just had a ton of sources to speak with and, and this was one of those stories that the more he pulled on the string the more came out you know he so he would talk to one person and they would send him to two or three other people and so it it just really he needed a lot of time in order to talk to everybody that he needed to, and um, you know, get get the story right. I mean, it's a it's a huge undertaking. The, the 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 way that Mian operated is so complex, you know, and it changed so many times. And you know, a lot of that, I I think, you know, some people would make the argument that. Uh, a lot of that was intentional on his part in in order to, you know, sort of keep, um, keep it from looking like he had as much control as he had. But, you know, just, just to unravel that would have taken a long time, let alone build out sort of the personal stories that, Daniel brought to life and that's one of the things that so impresses me about this story and about Daniel's work on it is that yes it is a big investigation and you know the finding just like the hard boiled down facts of that investigation are impressive and would be enough you know I think to just really blow people's minds when they read it but he also has these deeply personal and intense, uh, stories and characters that, that make you feel the piece and feel the human impact of it in a way that not a ton of investigative pieces do.
0: And on your end, as uh, something I always love to get okay, your insights and say word as well is you know what was it like for you to edit and help shape uh, this piece to to make it you know what we what we have come to know as that out a story of that that, that very narrative driven cinematically driven story
1: yeah, this was uh, this this piece in particular um, I felt a great responsibility and sort of a great privilege, if that makes sense to be involved in it. You know, I I think Daniel was going to tell a story, a great story, regardless of, of where it appeared. I'm glad he, he found an outlet where he could write at the length that he did, because I I think the story benefits from it, but he, first of all, Daniel just turned in like incredibly clean copy. So I had the great advantage of not really having to deal with things on that front. All that Daniel and I talked about really was just like storytelling, you know, how do, how do we structure this in such a way that we're sort of giving readers the the details, uh, the hard facts that they need while also like getting, the this human toll across and, and and making sure that readers feel that in a really acute way. So for me, you know, it was it was one of those stories that anytime I got a new revision or a, a new section from him, I was trying to clear the plate so that I could just focus on this because I knew we just always had the sense that it was a really important thing to, to do well and do the right way.
0: And as we kind of, uh, you know, wrap, wrap up our little chat here, you know, what are, what are some things that, you know, really excite you about this piece that you're, you're, that, uh, that you're jacked up about to when this, when this goes live and readers get to experience this firsthand?
1: Yeah, well, I'm really, uh, excited for Daniel, you know, he. I hope it gets a lot of readers. I hope it gets a lot of attention um, because I think he deserves it. I think he's told a really remarkable story. But you know, I'm also, you know, there are a couple of moments in this story where former members or staffers of uh, enthusiastic sobriety the outposts, you know, talk about the moments, other other times when media outlets have. have talked about what was going on in enthusiastic sobriety and, and what Bob Mian was up to. And they talk about sort of the feeling of, of relief, I guess, that, that they felt, uh, that someone was saying, Hey, look, this is going on and, and people are being hurt by it. And for those people who were hurt and managed to get out the, this feeling of, okay, I've, I'm seeing someone is telling my story. People are listening and actually care about it. And I, I really hope that the people who, who gave Daniel their time and their stories feel like they, they were treated with care and that, uh, you know, readers are going to respond to it and feel sympathy for what it is they've gone through because they, they really trusted Daniel a lot and they trusted us. And I, I really just hope we got it right.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, Jonah, as always, great pleasure to, uh, tease out the, the month's piece with you. And so, uh, we're going to hand the baton over to Daniel next. So thanks. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Jonah, and we'll do it again soon. Sounds good. Fantastic. So, uh, so what got, what got you into the freelance feature writing morass?
2: I think at the time it would have been the mid-2010s. The extent of my written output, I was a kind of satirical internet collagist. Had a kind of tumble <laughs> plug. And, you know, I wanted to get into writing. It seemed like nonfiction writing, A, paid, unlike uh, most other forms of writing. And then B, uh, you know, there, there, I, I, there are plenty of examples of kind of long-form literary nonfiction writers that I love. And uh, so I would have been. I, how did I get started there? Yeah, I'd actually. So I'd done these kind of stupid internet collages for uh, my editor and now friend Marina uh, for a website called Animal New York that is now dead. And when I so what to, is
0: define that for me? What is an internet collage?
2: So I would basically. I can't believe I'm going into this here, but I would basically <laughs> uh, print out uh, existing websites, cut them up collage them superimposed uh, new ostensibly funny text on top of them, scan them back. And it was unbelievably labor intensive for no real gain. <laughs> and I did that for, for some time, uh, not a huge amount, maybe like one or two it was like the first thing I kind of did out of, out of college. But, uh, you know, I figured that that was not a sustainable career path. I, yeah, wanted to branch in more legitimate kinds of writing. Uh, so yeah, my, my, uh at the marina i kind of expressed this to her and i started going on these little reporting jobs. i think i profiled uh new york city's only um pro-smoking advocate for uh, a now defunct website called hopes and fears uh i went to some kind of taxi driving school cab school in jackson heights i uh, went to the last remaining tunnel of love and these are all pretty short pieces and yeah, just kind of went from there. Uh, you know, I've been pursuing other kinds of writing all throughout. I've never been like a full-time freelance journalist or anything, uh, but that, that is probably the origin right there.
0: Nice. So w- are you a, full lance, uh, full, full, it's a full-time full freelancer now, or do you have other things that are oh, kind of on other, the side that, I that kind I would, of subsidize it? I'd be interested
2: in, in being a full-time freelance writer. It seems like it would be very difficult. The yeah. piece that I'm here to talk about took about two years, so yeah. I, I can't, can't really rely on that as a, as a source of income. But well, I mean, I guess some people can. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I got all kinds of, you know, random gigs helping uh, uh, Russian people finesse their internal business correspondence, doing various things for the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Whole whole smorgasbord of weird stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I love hearing that because I, I think a lot of people who who get into this and uh, who really want to do. You know, freelance journalism and long form features, they're like, how the hell do you even make it happen? And the fact yeah. is so many other very like people we look at and be like, that is an objectively successful, prominent freelance journalist. And they're like, yeah, I'm doing this other thing on the side too, because I need something steady that's going to get me some health insurance.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was listening to uh, the novelist Joshua Cohen on the Our Struggle podcast, and he is like probably one of the most prominent, and lauded novelists of, uh, his or our generation. And, uh, yeah, even he said he doesn't make a living from his book. And I mean, I guess that's maybe specific to fiction writing, but yeah, no, there's not a lot of money in the game or maybe there is, and I just don't know where to find it. But yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I haven't found it either, man. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, so when I was talking to Jonah earlier, yeah, he, And you alluded to it as well, that this piece that you've done for The Atavist, I mean, you've been reporting this for more than two years. So uh, just take us to the process of how you discovered or rediscovered this story and how you put your own repertorial spin on it.
2: Sure. So it was actually, it's been two years since I started doing it with Jonah. The full process is four years. About four years ago, uh, this was right around the time when I decided that I wanted to get into long form feature writing, I started a multi Reddit, which is like where you can compile a bunch of, you know, different subreddits into one feed and scroll through it. And uh, I would just brute force throw through that 100 or so feeds like every day. Uh, and it yielded basically nothing. And I did that for months. Then one day I came across uh, a post from a woman who said that she had lost track of her child or her connection with the child was been severed. She'd been trying to get in touch with them and she was asking for help. And I reached out to her. Uh, her name was Christine. It turned out that her daughter was in one of these enthusiastic sobriety programs. At the time, in the very beginning, the initial conception, having learned, and should I explain what those programs are? Or is that did Jonah take care of that? I
0: I think it would be good if you explained it too, to, as a to just bring people up to speed about kind of the crux of what uh, what what the story centers on.
2: Sure. So uh, about 50 years ago, uh, charismatic. Uh, con man, drug addict uh, named Bob Meehan, moved to Houston, started a kind of uh, youth group, an anti-drug youth group that was uh, founded with this anti-drug philosophy called enthusiastic sobriety, which is a lot like AA, but uh, many of the central tenets have been replaced. Most notably, he added this rule that you should only stick with winners, which in practice means basically cutting off anyone who is not in the group, including your own parents, if uh, they're not on board with the program. It was controversial from the very start. There was a a pretty damning 60 Minutes piece in 1980. Various other controversies flared up over the course of the years. There was another one in 2005, but seemingly the program was unkillable. It is now run by Bob Meehan's son-in-law, Quinn Stonebreaker. Yeah, these, these programs kind of cause a lot of damage. They don't really equip kids with any kinds of skills to combat drug use once they're not in the program. They end up staying in the program for years and years. And then those that are elevated to be counselors uh, end up in what is effectively a cult where their lives and all their decisions are controlled by the higher ups. A lot of the staff make like, you know, uh, I think one one of the people we talked to at the end of the article makes, I think it was like $200 a week for 80 hours of work, or something like that, something crazy. So, anyway, yeah, sorry, it's a pretty scattered explanation of, of what all of this is. But, yeah, to get back to what I was saying initially, uh, at the time when I found this, uh, it was like early 2017, I was 26, which is at the very upper end of uh, the age limit for this program. So, my first impulse was to join it and to kind of go <laughs> undercover mm-hmm. and be in the program for a while. I was quickly views of that idea but um you know i was reporting it on and off mostly off for a while i distinctly remember a conversation in a cafe with a friend of mine where i was like i don't i don't think i can even do this it would just take so 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 much time to do right but then on a whim about two years after stumbling across this idea i came across some kind of call for pitches from the atavist where they said they were looking for these Long, intensive narrative stories, and I thought maybe I would pitch to them, and I did, and uh, then I then I started writing it for them.
0: How did you start getting your head around the the size of this uh, story, the size and scope of it? Because it is such an ambitious piece of uh, of of the history of the enthusiastic sobriety and and just. Uh, you know, just telling telling the story of the the people involved and the people whose lives were effectively ruined by it.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it took a long, long time to really understand what was going on here. When I first started reporting it, I was mostly talking to teens who were in the program, or rather, who had left the program pretty recently. So I was only getting an idea of kind of how things were now. I don't think I totally realized that it had this long history. I certainly didn't realize some of the crazier stuff about his past. It it wasn't until I started writing just for The Atavist, about two years in, that I was put in touch with a um, former ES higher up named Dave Cherry, or actually someone drew my attention to this blog called uh, How I Was Spiritually Raped and Left to Die, which is uh, this blog spot, it's like 20,000 words or something longer, 40,000 words. And it is the uh, first person account of um, a defector from enthusiastic sobriety. Uh, And it's a really powerful story. I mean, Dave Cherry, who is the author of it, is an amazing writer. And that was the first indication I had of the real scope of um, enthusiastic sobriety, how long it had been going on, how destructive it was, all of that. So I got in touch with Dave. I had actually tried contacting him a few years earlier, not having realized he'd written this thing. He hadn't responded to me. But as it happened in this moment, he said that he was ready to start talking about it again. So he was really essential in helping me to understand the kind of mechanics of this program because he had a pretty privileged vantage point. But from him, I started talking to colleagues of his from that period. I started talking to people that were in the original variant of the program, which was called the Palmer Drug Abuse Program or PIDAP. And it the, just kept snowballing. still don't really feel like I fully got my head around it because you have all of these different programs and branches in all these different parts of the country. They all subscribe to the same sobriety philosophy, but they each have a different cast of characters. It wasn't until maybe two years into doing this that I even really nailed down the names of the different branches and what was connected to what. It took quite a long time, a lot of chart making, so many, many notes.
0: Wow, that's that's incredible. I'm picturing like the the classic sort of tracking down the serial killer type thing with on the big <laughs> corkboard with this yarn going no, every which direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if I, I didn't have the corkboard, but I looked like that person in the sense that I looked completely insane uh, throughout much of this process, including right now. Uh, but yeah, definitely.
0: <laughs> you know, the the great New Yorker writer Lawrence Wright talks about in any long story, be it a book or magazine story that you have to have a mule to really carry the narrative. And it looks like Dave Cherry was your, your mule for this piece. So what made him such a great central figure for you?
2: Well, Cherry was useful because he, he, his tenure spanned a few different, eras so he came in in the 1980s the early 1980s and he was there at a kind of inflection point in bob Meehan's career bob Meehan being the kind of cult guru who, who ran all of this he was also central to the 2005 campaign to take the programs down and so there's a kind of arc to his time there in in the program spanning from 1982 to 2004 but then there are still, I think, 26 years left unaccounted for that Dave Cherry was not a part of. But he was someone who, more than many of the people I talked to, I mean, everyone was deeply affected by their time there. Many were seriously traumatized. But his memory of what had happened and uh, the marks that had left on him made him a really useful, compelling subject.
0: And given that you've got you've got him, and then. As Jonah was saying, it was like the more people you were speaking with, the, the more people they told you to speak to and so forth. And that's like the great, as you were talking about earlier, the, how it snowballs and you start getting yeah. more and more information. Uh, so for you, what was, you know, how did you keep your mind around all of that, all of that sort of repertorial glut and, you know, and organize it in such a way that you're able to synthesize it and write such a compelling yarn?
2: Uh, well, thank you for calling it compelling. Uh, in the most like roundabout idiotic ways possible. I mean, I've never done anything like this before and I've learned quite a bit. I would not do it in the same way again. And I guess that is the benefit of, of doing something like this. But I just have like hundreds of Gmail drafts, Google Docs, different timelines, just this whole mess of material. And then I was constantly trying to synthesize and, you know, merge people's accounts and, um, uh, it, it was very hard to, to keep a handle on exactly what happened. I did find it, I mean, I think fundamentally, and this is probably obvious, the most useful thing to have is just a chronology. And actually, I don't know if you want to mentioned this to you, but I think it became very clear uh, in the process of reporting this that there was so, so much material, it was going to be hard to find a kind of through line. And so I think, that yeah, I assembled a 10,000 word chronology before even writing a word of the piece itself. Which I then sent to Jonah, and uh, he did a, an incredible job, sort of identifying, you know, stepping stones through the piece um, from that chronology. And then from there, I I kind of you know found the material to enrich the, those different those different points. What's
0: uh what's what's always struck me about uh, speaking with anyone involved in an his story, uh, whether it be the editors or the writer themselves, is that it's, it's really a very collaborative experience. Oh,
2: unbelievably so, yes. I mean, I have worked so closely with Jonathan Robbins. He is such an amazing uh, editor. It's gone through so many iterations. He has put up with so much for me in terms of my various kind of anxieties about it and confusions, and also just incompetencies. I mean, again, I've never done uh, <laughs> an investigative piece before of any kind, let alone one that is 20,000 words, but no, for the last, you know, two years, two and a half years, we have been working together very closely and he has been there to basically talk out any issues and has, you know, and then say too. I mean, she came in later in the process, but she, she was tremendously helpful as well.
0: Yeah. And what, what about the process in working with, with Jonah and, and say word through this, you know, what, you know, what, you know, where were you maybe, let's say, at the beginning? And, like, where are you Where are you now in terms of just your confidence in, in being able to pull off something of this nature?
2: Uh, I am more or less confident I could do it again. I don't know if I would want to. Uh, not, <laughs> not because... You know, I mean, I'm very happy with how this turned out, and very grateful for the for the work that uh, they were enjoying to put on it. I just, I don't think I could have ever imagined uh, how time-consuming something like this was, and how labor-intensive. But it feels good. I mean, it's you know, I feel productive doing it, transcribing an interview, condensing it, doing all the kind of peripheral work that's involved with investigative journalism. But it's a really interesting kind of writing because you know, I'm used to a kind of writing where you write something and then it's published I mean I'd be that sort of jokey pieces or opinion pieces or much less intensive sort of first person go somewhere and write about it pieces and when you're doing a piece like this you know every word is does not just have to be grounded in something someone said but then it has to be you know fact checked and uh, put through legal and you know that's all good obviously but it, it takes a lot out of you but no, I mean, at the same time, you know, uh, I didn't go to journalism school or anything. And I, I feel like this is a, a real education, uh, which I'm very grateful for. And I suspect I probably will do something like this again at some
0: point. With as much reporting and interviewing that goes into something as ambitious, of uh, as ambitious a piece as this is, it sometimes can be it can be hard to get off like the research or the reporter flywheel. Like you just want to keep going and going and going. Yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. So in in that sense, uh, sometimes people just say, what, what made you stop? And he's like, Oh, the deadline. So maybe it's as simple as that, but maybe you can say like, uh, or illuminate, you know, how you knew you were, you were done (laughs) with, with this.
2: You know, I might have to go with the deadline too. Uh, Although that was extended quite a few times. I'm trying to think, How the process played out. I mean, that has been kind of the problem, even in fact-checking in these final rounds, is that oftentimes, you know, I'm trying to remember things that I reported in 2017 or 2019 um, because this process has gone on for so long. But as how did it end? There was a point uh, a couple years into this where I would talk to someone and I could almost, you know, predict what they would say next. And yet I still went on conducting interviews because even though I would almost invariably know the broad outlines of what they were going to say. There might be kind of one useful detail in an hour's conversation that I could then insert into the story. But at a certain point, uh, yes, you do have to kind of, you know, decide it's time to wrap things up.
0: And and, in the process of of uh, synthesizing this piece and composing it and rewriting and so forth, uh, what part of this process, whether it be the reporting or the writing or the rewriting, did you feel most sort of alive and engaged with it?
2: That's a good question. You know, I think it was the reporting and I think it was kind of assembling the material and watching it all come together and shaping, you know, this more or less coherent narrative out of what was really just kind of a blizzard of facts and anecdotes and hearsay, obviously hearsay that has since been verified. Because, you know, the writing is very interesting in in a piece like this. It is like almost like so much of an investigative piece like this I've learned is like getting... The facts in order, right? It really was kind of deeply satisfying to start connecting. You know, for instance, in 2005 there was this big expose on ABC 15, the regional uh, network in Arizona, and you can see in that video, the the investigative crew comes to the office to kind of uh, uh, confront Bob Mehan, the cult leader. And a woman comes to the door and says, you know, no comment, no comment, leave us alone. Uh, but then actually finding the person that said, no comment, no comment, leave us alone, who has since left the cult and is describing the scene inside of the center at that time, you know, being able to merge all these different accounts of the same situation, things that were happening in different states, it was very satisfying uh, and very, I don't know, it, it, to, to take all this chaotic material and, and make a narrative out of it, it, was, it was definitely thrilling.
0: When I when I ask that question of people, that tends to be their reply. because that the discovery of the reporting and the the interviewing and tra- tracking down sources and trying to find that that kernel from some that hard to track down person that is just going to put the spin on it. And that can be finding a real life person, or it could be someone doing historical narrative nonfiction, where it's just like you track down this one random newspaper column that. Didn't just say the car sped away, but it was a Cadillac that sped away, and you're like, oh, I got like I got like this really cool detail that really elevates it and brings it to life.
2: Yes, and that's what you're looking for. Is like you know you're reading you know newspaper article after newspaper article. I mean you know newspapers.com by the way is a national treasure for anyone who's doing something like this. I don't know. I, I really should uh, apologize to them here because uh, for some reason they are accidentally giving it to me for free and charging a dead credit card. I, I got to go back on there and uh, give them some <laughs> give them some money, but they the, the they have everything. And uh, you know, I would go through every reference to Bob Meehan in every local newspaper in every small Texas town from 1970 to 1980, and you know, it would basically be the same article over and over and over again. But then, right, you would find just this one detail, this kernel of something, that would send you in another direction, or would really enhance the story, and that was uh, very satisfying.
0: Fantastic. Well, well, Daniel, I want to be mindful of your time, and uh, I hope this is maybe the first of uh, several conversations we might have when uh, you know over the years, as as more of your work comes out. So, uh, you know, thanks so much for everything you did with uh, this Adavis piece, which is just a uh, compelling, ambitious yarn, and uh, yeah, just best of luck going forward, man. It was great talking to you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great.
0: Really is kind of unreal that Daniel has never done anything like this before. I salute you, and uh, so go to Adivis Magazine to check that out. Consider subscribing to Adavis so you can support that incredible journalism that they are up to. It it doesn't re- it, it not only reads well but also it it just looks beautiful. And like I said in the intro, it's the way long form journalism is meant to be. They do it right. They do it well. So in any case, thanks to Daniel and the Atavist magazine and to Jonah Ogles for coming back on to tease it out. So in any case, we're going to get on out of here. Yeah, we're leaning mean for this extra Atavist-themed episode. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do interview, see ya.